All right, good morning. How is everyone? Good, good to see everybody. Good morning. And if you're a guest with us today, thanks for uh, checking us out here at Summer Point Church. We'd love to connect with you out on the patio. Um, we are in the thick of summer, aren't we? So many people gone on vacation. And uh, so we are today, we are going to be in the book of Ephesians. So pull out your message notes, maybe a copy of God's word. We're going to look at a, at a subject. We're going to talk about a subject that's very difficult, but we're going to tackle it this morning. And that is mending and reconciling a broken relationship. You know, maybe there's a relationship that has gone south. You know, maybe there's been some hurtful words between you and another person, and maybe that relationship is severed, maybe strained. And so what should you do, right? Uh, we're going to talk about that this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and chapter 5, verse 1 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, the Apostle Paul, every time he writes an epistle, the first half of the book is packed with doctrine and theology and truth. And then what he does about halfway through the epistle, Paul shifts gears and he says, okay, now how do we apply this? How do we apply this doctrine, this, these theological truths to our lives? How do we live gospel-centered lives? And so this is what he's doing. He highlights... Um, this statement about being kind to one another, tender-hearted, uh, forgiving one another, and, and what's the model, right? Well, he, he makes a beeline to the gospel. The model is, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, the verse says, be kind to one another. So easy to be unkind towards one another. It says, be tender-hearted towards one another. You know, the verse says, um, T tenderhearted in the Greek has the idea of being compassionate, right? It has the idea of showing, showing empathy towards someone. Um, last of all, it says forgive one another. You know, pretty easy command to live out, right? Right? Pretty easy to live out. You know, God tells us to forgive. Okay, we're going to forgive, right? No questions asked. Easy, done. Well, it's easier to talk about it it's harder to live it out. How can we learn to forgive other people? What's the motivation to forgive people's, um, people's jabs, wounds, you know, hurts? Well, the perfect example is given to us in this verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Forgive one another. The key is, as God in Christ forgave you. So we should relationally forgive other people based on how God has forgiven us. God is the model. We are to imitate him. We are to strive to be like him. You know, I love what William Ward said. He said, we are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. Isn't that true? We're most like men when we judge, when we're critical, when we're like, you know, playing sniper for Christ and we're, you know, we're playing the role of the Holy Spirit and we're checking people and we're, we're sitting in judgment on people, we're just like everyone else. But when we are most like God is when we choose forgiveness. One of the things that I've always said is you are never more like God than when you forgive. This is a God-like character trait. Only God can, can, can infuse this, can do this work in your life. The best example, I believe, of forgiveness, I mean radical heart change forgiveness in the Old Testament is the life of Joseph. Joseph was a man who went through a lot of junk. And this guy, his heart was molded by God's grace. If you go back to the book of Genesis, we're not going to reference, I'm not going to reference any verses there on your notes or in the PowerPoint, but you know, if you look at the patriarchal family, there was a generational sin of favoritism. I mean, start with Abraham. Abraham loved Sarah more than Hagar, the little girlfriend on the side. Isaac loved Esau more than he did um, Jacob. Rebecca, 
Um, Jacob's wife loved Jacob. So Isaac loved Esau. Um, Dad loves Esau. Mom, Rebecca, loves Jacob. They played favorites. Jacob then grows up. What's been modeled to him? Favoritism. So Jacob marries sisters, Rachel and Leah, the original sister wives. And what does he do? He loves Leah more than he loves Rachel. Leah's the one who's having the babies. Her womb is open. Rachel's womb is closed. Rachel gives birth to Joseph. Jacob loved Joseph more than all his other sons. Joseph was the favorite son. He was daddy's favorite. The Bible says that Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He was the golden boy in his golden years. The patriarchal family was plagued to the core with the sin of favoritism. I mean, this was, and it, and it, and it caused a generational effect that, that really trickled down through, uh, throughout the, 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 the generations. I mean, it, it really marked the family tree. This sin was passed to the next generation. Here's a parenting tip. More is caught than is taught. More is caught than is taught. More is seen with the eye than heard with the ear. So as you're parenting, understand, your kids are watching your actions more than they're hearing your words. They're watching you. They're watching how you respond. They're watching your actions. Oh, you can say one thing, but if you don't do another, it's hypocrisy. You know, favoritism was modeled before Jacob. It's no wonder why he grew up favoring a wife and a son. Can you imagine being, having multiple wives and you got a favorite wife and you got a favorite son, you got a whole grip of children and, and, and those brothers, they knew it. They knew that he was favored. Genesis tells us that Jacob loved Joseph um, and, and he gave Joseph a, a robe of many colors. He doted on Joseph. He, he lavished him with gifts. The brothers hated their youngest brother Joseph because he got all dad's attention. I mean, if you were one of the brothers, would you be a little bit miffed? I would. I'd be a little bit miffed. Like, Dad's paying more attention to Joseph and not me, not my, not my other brothers. You know, Joseph, at a very young age, he was a snitch. A lot of people think he wasn't, but I think he was. He sent bad reports about his brothers to his father. Joseph wasn't squeaky clean. Joseph wasn't like the perfect golden boy child. Joseph had problems at the age of 17 he has these fascinating dreams. Obviously, these dreams were given to him from the Lord, and, and, um, and these dreams that his brothers and his parents would, would someday bow down to him. He didn't understand it, and neither did the brothers. I mean, can you imagine being one of the brothers and your little runt of a, of a, of a brother is telling you, yeah, someday you're going to bow down, you know, you're gonna bow down to me. It's like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever, right? So what did they do? The brothers were so miffed at him that they sold him into slavery. They, what they did was they threw him into a pit. And they sold Joseph into slavery. And I guess they didn't really appreciate the dreams. And uh, Joseph is sold for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. He's then taken to Egypt. Potiphar, which is Pharaoh's military general, bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a very successful man. He found favor in Potiphar's eyes, and it says that he made him overseer of uh, his entire estate. There's a famous story about Potiphar's wife who lies about Joseph attempting to, to rape her, and he's thrown into prison. So he goes from the pit by his brothers to the prison. I mean, could it get any worse? I mean, he goes from bad to good to bad. There in prison, he interprets two prisoners' dreams, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, both officers of Pharaoh. On Pharaoh's birthday, the baker is hung. He's hanged. The cupbearer is restored to his position. The last verse of, of chapter 40, it says, yet the chief cupbearer, the one who survived, did not remember Joseph but forgot him. The first verse of chapter 41 says, two years go by. 
So the dude's in prison between, at the end of chapter 40, the beginning of chapter 41, he's in prison. The white space in your Bible between those two chapters is a marker of two years of imprisonment. It's in the white space that God was working on Joseph. It was in the white space that that God was building his his private character before Joseph's public ministry. It is in the white space that God does big things in your lives. He's going to use the white space of your life to, to refine you, to grow you, to build you, to conform you, to make you into who he wants you to be. You know, the chief cupbearer says that he forgot about Joseph. But you want to know who did not forget about him? God God did not forget about Joseph. Listen, you know what? The world can forget about you. Your family can forget about you. You know, your, people that you have loved and invested and cared for in your life, you could, they could forget about you, but there's one person that matters the most, and it is God. He never will forget about you. He did not forget about Joseph. He did not forget about him. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and because God was with Joseph, he, he rises to power. So I just want you to, I'm just kind of giving you like kind of a five-minute overview of his entire life. For, he goes from slavery to the penthouse, prisoner to second in command, over Egypt at, the, at the, the old age of 30. 17 years old, thrown into a pit, age 30, he rises to power. Now, we know the story. The brothers, they make two visits down to Egypt because of the famine in Canaan. And and Joseph, we know the story. He eventually reveals his identity in chapter 45. Now, fast forward to the end of the story. Jacob and Joseph, dad and son, are finally reunited. Jacob is on his deathbed, and Jacob says to Joseph, his his favorite son, the boy that that he loved, Can you imagine the heart-wrenching news when the brothers came back to their dad and they lied about their youngest son being ripped apart by a wild beast? Jacob's heart had to have been, we know his heart was broken. Jacob looks at Joseph at, at this reunion and he says, now let me die. Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. The Bible says that Jacob breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You want to know what death is? You breathe your last and you're gathered to your people. You're gathered to God. That's what death is. That's what death is. Death is a, it's the window. Death, death. The Bible tells us that death is the final enemy, but we know that it was crushed, destroyed, conquered by Jesus. Jesus destroyed death. We know it's the last enemy, but ultimately we know that God is, has defeated death and, and conquered our sin and conquered hell and the grave. And so therefore, death no longer has the sting on us. Death no longer has power over us because, because of Christ's resurrection, we will beat death as well. So when you take your last breath, you will be in the presence of God. So why are we living for the here and now? Why are we living for the material, temporal, fleeting goodies of this world? Why, why are we investing our lives in things that don't matter? We need to be investing our lives in things that do matter. Investing our lives in the kingdom, investing our lives in Jesus, investing our lives that, in things that will outlast us. Death ultimately is... is in one way, because Jesus conquered it, it's a, it's a gracious gift for us to, to be reunited with the creator and the lover of our soul, that we will be with God for eternity. So when you take your last breath, you are going to be gathered to your people. Death is going to be a sweet reunion of you and, and those that you love who are followers of Christ. If your family, if your friends, your oikos, if they don't know Christ, you will not spend any eternity with them. And this is why as believers, we have to take the responsibility. Listen, church, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. I'm tr- Let me sound an alarm. We need to be about sharing the gospel with people that we love because life is short. Eternity is long. There is a hell. There is a heaven. 
If you don't know Christ, you'll spend eternity in the fiery flames of hell. If you don't believe that, if you think that you're the all-knowing person in the universe, well, there's no way a loving God can do that, then you're just simply wrong. Because the Bible declares that without Christ, you will go to hell. There's no exit. There's no second chance. You will spend eternity without Christ. But if you know Christ, if you've tasted the sweetness of the gospel, if you've encountered and, and, and accepted his love and you've turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, if you're anchoring your eternity to Jesus, you are saved. You are saved forever. You will be with him forever. So, okay, back to the story. Death gathered to your people. So Joseph, what does he do? He falls on his face and he weeps over his dad falls on his face and he weeps over his dad and he kisses him. Jacob, Joseph's dad, is dead. Joseph's heart is breaking. He's grieving. The family takes their dad and they go to Canaan and they bury him and, and then they return back to the land of Egypt and the brothers are so terrified. They're so terrified because of what they've done, right? Dad's gone. There's no protection. There's no security. What, what are we going to do? And, and so they uh, concoct this plan. They send a, a message to Joseph. And, and let me paraphrase it. The message went something like this. Dad said to be nice to us. <laughs> That's essentially what they said. I mean, literally, they, they, they said, they, a little bit more technical than that. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Yeah, j just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, they did just a little evil to you. Joseph, the Bible says that he read the note and what did he do? He wept. He wept. What would be your reaction if you read that note? Would you be angry? Would you seek revenge? Would you settle the score? His reaction shows that his heart had been changed by God's grace. His heart had been changed by God. The most famous, I think one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, in all the Old Testament, really about God's providence, God's sovereignty, God orchestrating things for our good, for his glory, is this. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph said to them, do not fear for, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's powerful. There's a lot of application there for us when it comes to reconciling a relationship. Number one, this is not a fill in the blank right now, but number one, Joseph says, am I in the place of God? What does he mean by that? Joseph is saying, I'm not God. I'm not the judge. I don't hold the gavel. I'm not gonna give the final verdict. I'm not gonna move myself into the seat of God. God is the one who's, he's gonna deliver the sentence. He's gonna give the verdict. You know, we, we admire Joseph. We, we want a heart like, like Joseph, right? We, um, we, want, we wanna be like Joseph, you know? Um, we, we want the product, not the process. You know, we want the end product. We, we want the end game result, but we don't want the process to get us to the point where we get the product. We don't want the, the sorrow and the pain and all that to, to get us to a place where, okay, we're, we're really refined and we're changed. Like, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, I, I've prayed for God to give me patience in my life. Bad idea. Because when you ask for patience, what does God do? He's gonna send some trials and heartbreaks and setbacks and circumstances in your life that you may not like, and it's gonna develop what in your life? Patience. So here's the deal. When it comes to praying for certain things, I'm just very general. You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't get specific. God, just develop the fruit of the Spirit in my life, God, right? You know, but no, God really wants us to be specific. Like, if we're gonna pray for patience or, or, or whatever, right? So we want the product, but we don't want the process. We want the destination, but not the journey. I mean, the journey's hard. Joseph's journey was hard. 
But Joseph arrived at this beautiful destination and he he reconciled things with his brothers. What a, a beautiful picture of the gospel for us. I mean, Joseph, out of all the Old Testament Bible characters, he really is a, a beautiful dynamic, monumental figure that really points us to Christ. He is a a large figure type of Jesus. You know, we we want a heart of forgiveness, but we don't want the hurtful words and wounds of a friend. We want deep intimacy with God, but, but we don't want to pay the price for that. We want to be like Jesus without becoming like Jesus. You know, Joseph was able to forgive. Why do I believe he was able to forgive? Because God had done a work of grace in his life. Forgiveness was was in Joseph's heart. It was lodged there. God God did a a transformative work in his life. I love what uh, Paul David Tripp says. He says, you and I don't just need to be forgiven. We need to be radically changed as well. God's grace has the power to do both. So true. God's grace has the power to forgive you and to make you positionally right with God. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, Jesus taking your sin, you are now a friend of God, you are the righteousness of God. Jesus' account given to you, you are seen now worthy, forgiven, changed, loved by the creator of this universe. But after you get saved, this grace also wants to radically change you. This is the gospel. When you come to faith in Christ, yes, it changes you, you know, um, uh, vertically with God, but it should change you horizontally. It should, God's grace should change you in your relationships. Joseph was able to extend forgiveness because he was radically changed. You know, the thing that boggles my mind, you know, as believers, we're never going to reach a state of perfection. Can I get an amen on that? It's not going to happen. If you're striving for it, give up. If your aim in life is performance and, and man, I, I, should, I, I gotta do more, God will love me more, give up, surrender. Because you, it's impossible. God will never love you more than he does right now. He will never love you less than he does right now. I mean, God's love is unconditional. But, um, but, but the point I'm making is, is that um, it's not about performance, Right? It's about God's grace changing us. The thing that boggles my mind is when, when I see believers who um, are, they profess to know Christ, but their life doesn't back that up at all. Like there is no fruit in their life. They claim to know Christ, but their life is opposite of the gospel. And so, we need to be evaluating, gosh, are, are we walking in a worthy manner? Are we, are we redeeming the time? Are we, are we truly, genuinely uh, saved? Or are we living out our faith uh, in this lost and dark world? You know, God did a work of grace in Joseph's uh, life. And Joseph could have refused. I mean, he could have executed. He had the power, you know, snap his fingers. He had, he had the power to to take his brother's lives, but, but he didn't. He didn't choose anger or bitterness. You know what he chose? He chose grace. He chose forgiveness. You know, uh, here's a good way to deal with anger. Realize that people haven't done to you what you've done to God. So when people hurt you, and it's so easy to get caught up in that, and to, you know, to feel the wound, the jab, the hurt, and then to lash out. But instead of lashing out, be like, you know what? What they've done to me doesn't even compare to what I've done to God. And God, in his grace, has forgiven me and given me a second chance. And it's hard to have that perspective. It's hard to have the perspective of, you know, truly living out the gospel. Like, people's sins against us are pretty petty. They're small. They're insignificant in light of my ginormous sins against God. So we, we receive this grace. We receive Jesus. We, we take this grace, this forgiveness that we have experienced vertically because grace is not something that's just meant to be understood. Grace is meant to be experienced. We experience God's grace. We take this grace vertically and then we bend it out horizontally 
towards other people. You know, if you choose not to forgive, if, if, if you choose not to forgive, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna become a very cold person. You're gonna become a very indifferent person to other people. You're, you're, you're gonna become, your heart is gonna become very calloused. You know, you ever had one of those calluses on like your foot? I'm talking a gnarly callus where you're like, you know what, it's gnarly. It's just hard, nasty, hard, callous skin on your foot. Anybody hungry? Anybody want to go to lunch right now? All right. And, and that's, that's a, a beautiful picture of, of, a, of a hard, calloused heart. When you choose not to forgive, you choose for your heart to be hardened towards the person who has offended you. I think it ultimately leads to self-pity, self-absorption, and to be self-centered. You know, in life, we're going to get hurt. You cannot live without getting hurt. You know, people are going to say bad things about you. They're going to do bad things to you. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. Here's the reality. Life is brutal. Life is harsh. It is not easy. I mean, people are going to sin against you. And you, it's going to be, you're going to be left wondering, gosh, what, what just happened? I don't even understand this. Well, Deuteronomy 29, 20, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the Bible gives us a principle that there are some things that are secret to the Lord. We're not going to understand everything that happens to us here on earth. I mean, do you think Joseph understood it all? No. I think some things he did realize. I think he realized that God did use him to preserve a remnant during this famine. But not, not all of our questions are answered. There are some things that are, that are secret, right, that only belong to the Lord. And this side of heaven, we don't understand. But when we, when we, when we go to be with the Lord in heaven someday, and we stand before the Lord. I truly believe that God is going to reveal so many things to us. But the Bible says that God's ways are not our ways and his ways are not, his thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, when it comes to suffering and, and life circumstances, God has a bigger perspective. Here's what I mean by that. You know, any uh, NFL football fans, anybody, right? Football's getting ready to start. Let's go. Come on. About a month. Anybody pumped? Anybody ready? Let's go, man. Sunday football. Now, here's the deal. You're supposed to come to church and then go home and watch football. Okay, let's just be clear. Come to church, God first, football second. But there's nothing like Sunday night football, man. Oh, man, it's so, so good. Anyways, when you're watching a football game, where are the coaches at? They're on the sidelines, right? But there are coaches way up high in a box. Who has the best perspective on maybe the formation, the strategy, what the defense or offense is doing? It's not the head coach who's right there, right? He has a certain angle on the game. The coaches in the box really have the best perspective on the game because they're seeing it top down, right? That's the beauty of a football game. Well, that's a lot like life. God is in the box. God has, he has a bigger perspective on the game of your life than you do, right? Sometimes those closest to the action have the worst perspective. God has a perspective on your suffering and, and people that are hurting you that you just don't have. So every, every time someone hurts you or every time there's a, there's a suffering or, or storm that comes into your life, just know that, you know what? God's in the box. It's filtered through his hands, just like Job. It's, it's for my good, for God's glory. And remember this truth. There is no such thing as meaningless suffering. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering. You're not going to suffer because it's just it's meaningless. No, there's a purpose. There's a purpose to our pain. There's a purpose to why we're going through what we're going through. You know, Ephesians 4 says, you know, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And what does Paul, that's what Paul says. What does Jesus say about forgiveness? Look at Matthew 6. 14 to 15. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons he's ever, he's ever delivered, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, go home and read it. Powerful. Jesus touches on so many different topics. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Okay, that's great. Good news, right? Now notice this. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So you might be looking at this like, wow, that seems kind of conditional. Like, 
if I forgive others, God will forgive me. If I don't forgive others, God will not forgive me. Are you saying that, that God's not going to forgive my sins so I won't be able to go to heaven? Are you saying that, that God is going to strip away my salvation when I sin? No. This passage is not talking about judicial forgiveness. I mean, our, our position in Christ, our union in Christ, faith in Christ, our position, our union does not change. Now, some denominations, they're going to tell you, well, God, he saves you, but you could lose your salvation and all that stuff. Do I believe that people can drift? I think people can drift. I think people can f- dabble into sin and then drift into sin, completely fall into sin. They could maybe walk away from God for a time, but, but if you're a genuine believer, God's bringing you back. I don't believe that God gives you salvation and takes it away. The scriptures are so clear that when God gives you salvation, it is permanent. Uh, he, he, you are held by God's power. It's God's gift. You know, God doesn't renege. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to give you a promise and then take it away. No. So this is not talking about judicial forgiveness. It's talking about daily relational forgiveness. Here's what I mean by that. If we choose to, ex- to not extend forgiveness to someone else, we're choosing, in a sense, we're choosing loss of intimacy with Jesus. We're choosing that there's going to be a break in our fellowship with God. So forgiveness generally involves like there's an injury. Someone hurts you, someone wounds you, and then it moves to like, like a debt. Well, okay, like you hurt me, so... Okay, now I'm, I'm going to hurt you. Like you owe me. Because you wounded me, now you owe me. And so there's like this, this performance uh, mentality. But it has to move from, you know, you, you owe me. Sometimes, you know, people do this in a marriage where, you know, spouse hurts another spouse and then here's what they do. They react. Maybe they give the cold shoulder, the silent treatment for days. It's like, well, that's not going to help the situation. Right? It's not about them earning, you know, your love, right? Working for your performance. It's about you choosing to be Christ-like. You choosing to forgive. You choosing to cancel that perceived debt. I mean, that, that's, that's what forgiveness is all about. And, and that's what it means to reconcile a relationship, to make things right. Now, let me give you a few principles, and, um, and then we'll be done. Here's... Point number one, go to the person and make it right. Go to the person and make it right. So how do you reconcile a relationship? You've, you've got to go. You can't sit back. You've you got to make the first move. God calls us as believers to make the first move, right? Um, you wronged them or they wronged you, go to them. Romans, 5, Romans 15 verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So the principle is, Paul is saying, listen, in life, you could be strong or you could be weak. Do you want to be strong or do you want to be weak in a relationship? See, you see, the stronger believer will always reach to the weaker. And this is, this is a principle in every area of life. This is the hardest step in the reconciliation process. Someone has dealt you dirt. They've hurt you. They've wounded you. What do you do? You make the phone call. You go to them. You send that email. You send that text. You set that appointment, right? You know, life is messy. Life is messy. You know, you're going to hurt people and they're going to hurt you. You know, one of the humblest things that I have learned as a dad is when I am wrong, going to my kids and apologizing to them. Do you know how humiliating it is to apologize to like a four-year-old? It's humiliating. Or apologizing to a 14-year-old. To, you know, if, and, 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 and as a parent, God calls you to, to model the gospel. As a dad, as, as a mom, God is calling you to, to image, to mirror what he's like. You, you are stewarding your kids, right? You're, you're called to love your kids. Model the gospel. Well, if I want my kids to extend forgiveness, accept forgiveness, like I, I have to model that. So going to my kids and saying, hey, I'm sorry for what I said there, I'm sorry for what I did there. You know, it's very humbling. You put yourself in a very low position. 
But I think, I think when you do that, you know, God exalts, tell them I said hello, right? Summer Point Church, you know, next Sunday if they want to come. Um, but here's the deal. You humble yourself. God exalts the humble. He opposes the proud. So when it comes to reconciliation, we've, we've, we've got to work it out. We've got to reconcile. You know, I heard someone say years, years and years ago, hurting people hurt, and it's so true. You know, I hear people say, well, that church hurt me, that person hurt me, and so I left that church, and I went to another church. Well, here's some bad news, right? Um, problem is, you go to another church, guess what? You're going to get hurt again. I mean, Jesus tells us. He gives us over 51 another's in the Bible. Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another. If it wasn't an issue, if forgiveness wasn't a, a, a struggle, if it wasn't reality, he wouldn't give us that one another. So as believers, like we need to, we need to um, forgive one another. We need to extend that to each other. Forgiveness always starts with you, not them. Charles Stanley, he defines forgiveness as the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that is a result of a wrong done against you. I love that. Literally, setting someone free. That's what forgiveness is. Let me give you another definition. No longer continuing to dwell on the sin that was forgiven. So, you know, I've heard someone, someone in my community group said months ago, and uh, he said, listen, sometimes you have to forgive that person a thousand times in your head. You have to just say, I forgive them, I forgive them, I forgive them. And eventually, over time, you will genuinely forgive them. Because it's a hard issue. The word forgiveness, the root word means to untie. Someone hurts you, you have to untie the painful knot. And you gotta let it go. Sometimes we wanna procrastinate about a lot of things. When it comes to a strained, broken relationship, you cannot procrastinate. You gotta go and make it right. You know, if you don't seek to resolve the conflict, then your heart's gonna become cold and calloused and, and worse. Bitterness and resentment is going to set in. Someone has said resentment is me setting myself on fire in hopes that the smoke will bother you. You know, that's what resentment is. You think, oh, you know, if, if I hold that person hostage in, in my anger, then, then I'm actually hurting them. No, you're actually hurting you. You're actually hurting you. Forgiveness is surrendering your right to hurt someone for them hurting you. That's what it is. You surrender. You, you set free. You, you let it go. You release that pain and that hurt. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The Bible tells us as far as it depends on you, you take the initiative, right? Paul says, If it is possible... You ever tried to reconcile a, a relationship and it really wasn't possible? Anybody? Why? Because it takes two to tango, right? It takes two people to work through the issue. But Paul is saying, you be the stronger brother. You reach to the weaker. You make the move. You reach out to them. You seek to resolve the conflict. Here's point number two. Don't lash out, give it to God. Don't lash out, give it to God. You know, if, if, if you never say, I was wrong or you hurt me, then you'll never be able to experience the power of forgiveness. You have to be able to say those three hard words, I was wrong, you hurt me. How do we respond when, when someone hurts us? Well, number one, we can seek revenge. What does that mean? We can settle the score and we can right the wrongs. A few weeks ago, we were on vacation in Newport and kind of hanging out by the pool, and it was nighttime, and my kids were swimming, and, and uh, we're kind of, like, we're a big family, so we're kind of loud. We're kind of a loud, okay, very loud family. And uh, we're, like, basically took over the pool, right? And it's, like, pretty late that night, and the boys and Grace, I don't know what they were doing. Me and Cass were relaxing on the chair, and we were lounging, enjoying just the evening, and I don't know. They got into some sort of a playful like dunk, dunk our sister underneath the water, hold her head underneath the water. I don't know, something like that. And she came up like, 
Like literally, she was like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And you know, she's probably right. The boys were probably holding their head underneath the water for a very long time. And uh, there was another mom kind of in the area. She started making her way towards Grace because Grace is like, I can't breathe. You know, she's trying to, you know, which if, you, if you've ever had your head underneath the water for too long, you start panicking. I've been there and it's very, it's, <laughs> it's miserable. So this lady, this mom starts coming over and Candace is nicely saying, oh, she's okay. And, and this lady's like, breathe, breathe, you're okay, you're okay, you, you know, and, and Candace is like, oh, she's okay, and it's her brothers, and, and uh, I decided to jump into the mix, and I jumped in, and I told a blunder. I came in hot. I mean, I wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. I was in the flesh, in the moment. I was like, hey, lady, um, you know, you're breaking parent code. You're not supposed to parent other people's kids. Well, what are you doing? Straight up. I just called her on it. And she, she was kind of like, she quiet. And then she like, kind of like moved, swam away, you know. And in that moment, after checking her, like the revenge part, it felt so sweet in the moment. Right? When you seek revenge, you say something in the moment. Like you're like, yeah, I got you. But then I wilted. I wilted under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit got all over me. And the Holy Spirit was like, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you saying that? Why, why did you respond to her that way? And I was so convicted about it. As, as we were done swimming, I, I had to walk up to this lady who's in the pool. And I said, um, hey, I just want to let you know I'm really sorry for saying that to you. That, that's not who I am. Uh, will you forgive me? She didn't say anything. She just nodded her head <laughs> like she was accepting my apology. And it was a moment, like we've all had those moments, right? Where you put your foot in your mouth and you're like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? We, we think revenge will solve it, right? But it doesn't. We think maybe retreat. Well, if I just, you know, if I cut the relationship, if I never speak to that person, right? If, if I never extend forgiveness, then you know what? That's how I'm gonna deal with it. That's not right either. Revenge, retreat, here's what we need to do. We need to do what's right, and that is forgive the person. Max Lucado, he says this, build a prison of hate if you want. Each brick a hurt, design it with one cell and a single bunk. You won't attract roommates. Hang large video screens on each of the four walls so recorded images of the offense can play over and over 24 hours a day. Headphones available on request? Appealing? No, appalling. Harbored grudges suck the joy out of life. Revenge won't paint the blue black in your sky or restore the spring in your step. No, it will leave you bitter, bent, and angry. Give the grace you've been given. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but, get, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's an agenda for misery. Right every wrong, repay every hurt, act like your God. Joseph didn't do that. He, he was willing not to seek payback or vengeance. He, he, he knew that, that that business belonged to the Lord. And so sometimes we think, well, you know, they got to earn my forgiveness. They got to work for my grace. They got to right the wrongs. And then maybe, maybe I'll forgive them. That's not how it works. The ultimate test of love is to forgive somebody. If you really love someone, you'll forgive them. I mean, Jesus tells us the, the, the great commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And then Jesus goes on. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how, do we, how would we love ourselves? Well, we would, we would forgive ourselves. We would do a lot of things for ourselves, and we should extend that towards other people that have hurt us. Love them the way you want to be loved. Here's point number three. Recognize that your horizontal relationships affect your vertical relationship with God. So Matthew 5 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Okay, we're running out of time, so I gotta hurry. The, this is the only time in the Bible where you are instructed to interrupt your worship for something more important. God is saying, I want you to stop what you're doing and reconcile the relationship. Not, it's not saying, right, if, if someone has something against, if you have something against them. No, if someone has something against you, take action. Reconcile the situation. Here's the principle. You cannot be right with God and wrong with other people. Like someone who says, oh, I love Jesus, but like they have no love for other people. It's a total contradiction. The Apostle John tells us that if we love God, we're going to love people. That it's, it's going to be manifested in our lives. So why are people unwilling to forgive? Write this down. I'm going to give you three points. Selfishness, pride. Let's first talk about selfishness real quick. Why do people, why are they unwilling to forgive? I think selfishness is the big one. You know, someone has been hurt. Here's what they do. They turn the hurt inward and they say, well, if they ask me, then I'll forgive. Well, the question is, who's in control? Are you in control or are they in control? Because forgiveness is about untying the hurt, right? Letting go of the, of the prerequisites for forgiveness. Sometimes we want to stack up all these conditions. You know, people say, well, when they change, then I'll forgive them. They may never change. They may never change. That person may never change. That person who had an affair on you, that, that person that, you know, they did some raw business dealing with you, that person that lied, that person that swindled you out of money, they may never change. But forgiveness is not about them. Forgiveness is about you. You being spiritually right before God, you forgetting, you releasing, you choosing to move forward in God's grace. Here's the second point is pride. We're unwilling to, to forgive because of pride. Well, if I forgive that person, then they're gonna see me as weak. And so there's this perception that, that we wanna cling to, right? What, what are people gonna think? Well, Paul says, the stronger reaches to the weaker. So it might look, from a worldly perspective, it might look weak, but for the one that we live for, we live for an audience of one, which is God, when he sees his child being a stronger person reaching to the weaker, I almost want to think that God's like, that's my boy. That's my girl. Beat the stronger reaching to the weaker. Here's the third point why people are unwilling to forgive. They think the offense has been dealt with. They think the offense has been dealt with because they understand the hurt, right? They understand what's happened. Understanding is a part of forgiveness. You know, there's a famous cliche that says time heals all wounds. I don't think that's true. It, it, it helps us for, somewhat forget the wounds, but it doesn't heal them. Forgetting is not forgiving. It's a choice that you make. Sometimes you've got to make that choice over and over and over again, right? It doesn't wipe out the past or your memory when you forgive someone. You have to choose to forgive. You have to choose to move on. You know, God in the Old Testament, it says that he remembers our sins no more. It doesn't say doesn't say God forgets our sins. He chooses by his grace not to remember. He's still omniscient. He's all-knowing, but he chooses to bring it up. So relationally, when people hurt us, we take those wounds and we choose not to reflect, not to, yeah, not to meditate on that stuff or to take that junk and use it as weapons in the future. Sometimes that's what we do. We weaponize that hurt and we hurt one another. Here's point number four, model what God is like. Ultimately, it's about living out the gospel. What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians, right? Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So why should we forgive? Because God has forgiven you. That's what Paul is saying. Be imitators of God. We are never more like God than when we choose to forgive. So when you look at the life of Joseph and you look at these principles in the New Testament, what does it say about forgiveness? See people through the lens of grace. Sometimes it is so easy to see people through the lens of resentment or bitterness or harboring ill will feelings towards people. But God says, listen, I want you to put on the lens of grace. I want, 
you know, this grace that you have experienced personally, this love that you have that you've experienced with me, this grace, this forgiveness, I want you to receive that and then I want you to bend it out towards people. Take my grace in your life and give it towards people. This is really hard to do in all of our lives, including mine. But God calls us to live out this gospel, right? To extend this grace to other people. So the next time there's conflict, there's, maybe there's a broken relationship. Maybe right now there's someone popping in your head. Like, man, I need to go to them. I need to reconcile. Go to them. Make it right. God can honor that. Let's pray. Father God, we just, Lord God, thank you for, God, your word, Lord. Lord, help us to be like Joseph. Help us to be just like him and and, and how he handled so much hurt and pain and He chose not to seek revenge. He he chose not to be in the place of God, to be the judge. He chose to forgive his brothers. God, I pray that you would do that work in all of our hearts, that you would cultivate that grace, that we would would see people through the lens of grace, that, that we would not cultivate resentment or bitterness or seek to even the score or retreat and just Push it underneath the rug. Help us, Lord, to, to, to go to people. Help us to reconcile. Lord, help us to live out the gospel in our lives. Help us to make the first move. Give us courage. I pray for those that may be right now just struggling with, what do I do? How do, how do I make the first move? God, give them grace. Lord, help them to, um, help them to honor you. Help them to choose the, the, the path that you want them to take. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your amazing love for us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. We are so unworthy. We do not deserve the gift of salvation, and and yet you freely give that to us. So, Lord, help us to take this love, this forgiveness, and, and extend it to people in our lives. Lord, God, I pray that you would speak to us today. Shape us by your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.